us. Why don't you go ahead and open up your Bible to Psalm uh, 52. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming up in, down the aisle right now and they can, uh, they can help you uh, with, uh, with that. The book of Psalms is not arranged in chronological order. In fact, Psalm 52 describes an event in David's life that happened many years before the previous Psalm, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, where we looked at last week, is a moment in time, a very dark time in David's life, where David had done something wicked and evil and was personally overcome with sorrow for what he had done. Psalm 52 describes a time in David's life where someone else had done something wicked and evil, but they are not filled with sorrow and remorse. They're, in fact, boasting about it, bragging about it. Psalm 52 is a psalm for us to read and reflect upon when we come face to face with utter evil. Not sin and remorse, but complete rebellion against God, brash arrogance towards God, towards all other people, pure evil. For some of us, we hear about these things, you know, it's, it's on CNN, something happening in a faraway land. Every now and again, we see something on CP24 or hear it on 680 News and it comes that much closer to home. Others of us have, have been sitting there hearing news that it, it doesn't even seem, like, how could that possibly be true? Someone that I know, someone that I care about, how could that evil have taken place, whether it's so far away or so close to home, how do we bring all of those feelings, all of that confusion, all of that pain, all of that hurt, how do we bring those things before the Lord? That's what Psalm 52 is about. This is a heavy psalm. This is a heavy topic. And so I'm going to pray for God's grace right now to be with us, to be with me, to use his spirit and his word to help us and to encourage us. For some of us, Psalm 52 is a psalm that you're going to have to store away the next time you are confronted with evil. For others of us, this is, this is a right here, a right now, uh, a psalm for us. And so we're going to pray that God would, would speak to us through his word. So Heavenly Father, God, we come to you right now. And Lord, we know that you inspired David to write these things down, Lord, to pen this, this poem. And Lord, we know Romans 15 tells us whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so I pray, God, that you would teach us through your living and active word. God, I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would draw so close and so near to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin as we always do with the title at the beginning of the psalm, the part that's written in all caps. It says, to the choir master, a maskil. The choir master would have been the one who would have put this to music or arranged the score for the musicians in the choir to sing. A, a maskil is a, a, a musical term we're not familiar with. We don't know for sure what that means. Then it says that it was written by David. It's of David. Then it describes the circumstances that led to this song. It says, when 
Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, if you have a cursory understanding of the Old Testament, you've probably heard of David, you know, the giant slaying a king of Israel. This was written before he became king. And so most of us are familiar with David, but others of us may not be as familiar with these other characters. There's Doeg, who comes to Saul and says something to Saul about Ahimelech. And in order to really understand the, what this psalm is about, we need to understand what is being described here in the title or in the introduction. So we're going to turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21 and 1 Samuel chapter 22. So let's do that now. We're going to get um, an understanding of the context here, just as we did last week. It's important for us to pay attention to these titles because they help us uh, understand what was going on in David's life when he wrote this. When we come to 1 Samuel 21, uh, David is on the run. And he has chosen to uh, leave everything behind. He's found himself in the middle of a political controversy. And not only is the situation where he finds himself uh, political, it's also relational. It affects his family. You see, David is not yet king. Saul is king at this point in time. And Saul has been giving in to thoughts of worry and anxiety and paranoia. And Saul is convinced, even though there's no evidence... Saul is convinced that David is against him and that David is out to get him and overthrow his rule. So Saul's been throwing spears at David every chance he has. And it's, it's complicated. Like so often our trials are complicated. It's very complicated. Saul was not just David's king. Saul was also David's father-in-law. Uh, David was married to Saul's daughter. Not only that, the one guy that David felt like he could confide in, David's best friend Jonathan, was Saul's son. Saul at different times tried to convince Jonathan and David's wife to kill David. So David chooses to leave the capital city of Gibeah and he's now on the run. We pick up the story in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 1. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? This, uh, this story begins in a town called Nob. Now, I'm not one for politics, but if I lived in a town called Nob, I would probably run for mayor. And I'd have the first city council meeting and I'd change the name of our town. That's another story. In Nob is living Ahimelech. Ahimelech is a priest. Uh, this is, is this town where the, where the tabernacle, holding the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God was to be worshipped, that's where David goes. He, he goes to, to really the only safe place that he thinks he can go to. Notice that Ahimelech comes to him trembling. Saul was reigning with, really with a reign of terror. Saul was afraid and fearful and paranoid and that was filtering down among all of the people as well. As go the leaders, so go the people. And so Saul is on edge, and so Ahimelech is on edge as well. And he's confused. He, he wants to know why David is alone and why no one is with him. You see, David was a military commander. Everywhere he went, he brought soldiers with him. It was really odd for him to see him by himself. 
Verse 2, David said to Ahimelech the priest, the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you, I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. David here says, listen, I'm on, I'm on a secret mission. I don't have a lot of time to talk. I'm meeting some guys. I've got a rendezvous, rendezvous point set up. I, I just Whatever you have, I, I, I could really use. David's looking for an army's worth of food. Now remember, there is no army. He's not meeting a group of men. He is by himself. David is flat out lying here. Uh, the, the heroes that we read about in the Bible really aren't heroes. These are imperfect people. David's sin with Bathsheba was not his only sin. And, and David is afraid. He's confused. He doesn't know who to trust. And rather than coming to Ahimelech and telling him what's going on, he chooses to lie. A lie that we're going to find he's going to regret greatly. So he's, he's, he wants an army's worth of food, not because he wants to feed an army, but he's not sure how long he's going to need to feed himself. How is he going to sustain himself? The priest answered him in verse 4, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. The holy bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. But Ahimelech here is willing to make an exception. He says that the young men have kept themselves from women. There was, there was a, there was, sexual intercourse was related to the purity rituals related to the, to the tabernacle. And so the priest is asking about about these men, verse 5, David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will the vessels be holy? Again, he's, he's lying. There are no men. David is just trying to provide for himself, to protect himself. Verse 6, so the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread, on the day it is taken away. And so Ahimelech gives David this, takes David at his word and gives him this holy bread. Now this is very, I, I'm summarizing this story quickly to give you the context. If you want to really uh, dig down deep, Pastor Chris Shipley preached on this very passage about a year and a half ago. If you type in to our podcast or into SoundCloud, Trusting God to Tell the Truth. Pastor Chris does an amazing job talking about the dynamics of truth-telling and lying and its consequences and what God's Word has to say about that. So I commend that, uh, that sermon uh, to you. But this is, this is a moment where Ahimelech chooses to show mercy. Jesus actually refers to this story in Matthew 12, verse 4, where, where kindness needs to trump legalism. Even though, even though David was lying... David's story compelled Ahimelech to give the bread as an act of mercy, as an act of kindness and, and compassion. So that's what he chooses to do. So that's who Ahimelech is. We can cross him off the, off the list, but we still haven't been introduced to Doeg. Verse 7, it says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So Doeg was a, a leader sort of in, in, in Saul's a core a group of leaders. He was in charge of all of, the, all of the shepherds, all of the flocks. Now look ahead to chapter 22 in verse 9. 
It says, then answered Doeg the Edomite. He's at a meeting with all of the other leaders. And he tells Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him a, the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So he gave him the bread. He also gave him uh, a sword to, uh, to provide for himself and to protect himself. Doeg reports all of this back to Saul. Verse 11, the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest. Then look at, at verse, uh, then look at verse uh, 16. The king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Ahimelech had no idea what was going on. Ahimelech thought that he was, he thought doing something for David was the same as doing something for Saul. He thought they were working together, but because David lied, Ahimelech was caught in the middle. And then Saul again, because he's so wrapped with paranoia and with fear, is so afraid of people betraying him and being disloyal. He orders the execution of Ahimelech. Verse 17, the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand also is with David and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So here's Saul ordering the guards, execute these men. The guards are standing there. They, they want to do what their ruler is telling them. They want to submit to the orders, but they're looking at these are innocent men. These are priests. These, these, these men have been set apart to serve God, and, and he, he won't do it. But someone will. Verse, verse 18 Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 of the priests. That, so he followed what Saul commanded, but then he went beyond Saul's orders. Verse 19, and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. The only one to escape was a, a young man named Abiathar, Abimelech's son. And he comes and he tells it to David. Now you, you can picture sort of the headline on CNN. Remote village in the Middle East firebombed by mercenary soldiers. Right? We, we, we hear had government turns a blind eye to a slaughter of innocent people. We, we hear these kinds of headlines. But for David, it... It hits home. The only survivor comes and tells him. Verse 22, And David said to Abiathar, I, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. Notice this, he says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David sees how he is responsible if he had just come clean, if he had just told Abiathar what was, what was, sorry, if he had told Ahimelech what was really going on in that moment, perhaps this atrocity could have been avoided. David shares some of the responsibility here. 
But David also knows that Doeg has done something utterly evil. A, 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 a slaughter of innocent people that is absolutely senseless. And this is the context of Psalm 52. When we come face to face with something that is so tragic and so wicked and so evil, we're not talking about some sort of accident. We're, we're talking about when someone does something intentional. That's what Psalm 52 is about. And so with heavy hearts then we turn back and read what David wrote when he heard about this horrible massacre in the village of Nob. When this maniacal, wicked, and cruel man named Doeg slaughtered innocent men, women, and children. And notice how he begins in verse 1. He begins with the word why. So often that's the first word on our lips, isn't it? When we hear about these kinds of incidents, when we wonder, what would motivate someone to do that? Why? And that's so often the first question on our heart, and that's why so often the book of Psalms begins with the word, why? And he begins by saying, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. David begins his poem by painting a portrait of the wicked. A portrait of the wicked. He's got a tongue like a razor blade. He has a heart that loves evil rather than good. He's got a mouth that boasts of evil. It's not just that he's done something and then tries to hide it and get away with it and, and pretend like nothing happened. No, he's committed such a heinous atrocity and yet it says right there, he is boasting about it. And then David calls him, Almighty Man. David is using biting sarcasm here. Oh, mighty man. Oh, that took a lot of courage, Doeg, for you to, for you to slaughter those unarmed priests. That was, that was really brave of you when you stormed that unprotected village. Oh, mighty man. That's who Doeg thought he was. That's what he was boasting about. He was a coward. He, he, he wasn't giving people a chance to fight back. He was attacking innocent, defenseless people. He says, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? And then he says, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. David is saying, don't you know that no matter how evil your behavior is, that God's love is always stronger. Don't you know that no matter how much you try to do, you can never stop. God always wins. Love always wins. That's how, God, that's how David begins this psalm. 
Why do you boast like you're winning? You won't win. It might feel like you're winning right now, but God's steadfast love endures all the day. No matter what we may be facing, no matter what evil may surround us, we can know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Height, depth, angels, demons, better, whatever it may be, nothing can separate us. That God's love always wins, always endures. So he's boasting about evil. His, verse 2, his tongue plots destruction. He, he planned all of this out. The way that he was going to talk to Saul. The way that he was going to get Saul to become concerned about Ahimelech. So that Doeg would be able to carry out this evil deed. His tongue plotted destruction. He says, you love evil more than, more than good. A complete inversion of right and wrong. His sense of morality is completely distorted. Loving what's evil rather than what's good. And, and you love lying more than speaking what is right. And then there's a selah, a pause, a lifting up. There's this portrait of evil. It says, you love words that devour, O deceitful tongue. And then verse 5, our eyes shift from the evildoer to God. Verse 5, it says, but God. Now some of you might be thinking, I was, I was going to wonder when you were going to bring God into this because when, when, when we read why in verse 1 most of us aren't thinking why Doeg a lot of us are thinking why God God why are you allowing this, this to happen and if you're, if you're here today and you have that question for some of us Honestly speaking, who don't believe in God, the reason why you don't believe in God is that very question. If there is a God, why would he allow Doeg to do this? And if, if that's your reason for not believing in God, you need to understand you're not, you're not alone. I mean, for centuries, people have set up that idea as a reason for for proving that God doesn't exist or can't exist. The first one to really articulate it was, was Epicurus, a Greek philosopher. And this is how he put it into words. He said, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can but does not want to. If he wants to but cannot, he's not all-powerful. If he can but does not want to, he is not good. If God can abolish evil and really wants to do it, why is there evil in the world? I'm sure many of us have encountered a question like this. I'm sure many of us, even, even here today, still wrestle with that question. If God can stop evil and if God wants to stop evil, why won't he stop evil? Now there's a question that we need to ask Epicurus. There's a question that we need to ask whether it be the honest agnostic or the angry atheist. When this question comes up and when someone states, I can't believe in God because there's so much evil in the world, the question that we need to ask is, where do you get your concept of evil from? If there is no God... Because there is evil, well, 
How are you sure that evil is evil? How can you say that what Doeg did in 1 Samuel 22 is wrong? On what basis? You see, as Christians, we believe that there is a law that governs morality, ethics, how we ought to behave, what we ought to do, how we should live. We believe that there is a law because there is a lawmaker and that God has given that law to us in his word and on our conscience as we're made in his image. But if you don't believe in God, how can you say that this is right or that this is wrong? How can you say that this is true or that this is false? You see, C.S. Lewis, the great author and philosopher, he once held to, to Epicurus his position. He once believed that there can't be a God because the world is so evil. But then he started thinking about, well, where did his concept of evil come from? This is what C.S. Lewis said. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with? When I called it unjust. And it was that question that got C.S. Lewis thinking. And and reasoning and realizing that he has no right to say that any action is just or unjust. Unless he believed that there was a judge. And that's what caused C.S. Lewis to turn to believe in God. You see it's interesting that whenever these atrocities take place in the news, university professors, experts in ethics, politicians, news reporters, celebrities are always quick to call events like what Doeg did in our contemporary culture, they immediately label it with the word evil. This was an evil act, a heinous deed, an atrocity. But these are the same people that in different contexts say that there's no such thing as right and wrong. That values and morals are culturally constructed. You see, our world wants to have it both ways. We want to be able to live however we want to live and create our own little moral universe. But when something really goes wrong, then we want to be able to call it evil. But for someone who doesn't believe in God and believes that evolution and natural selection is really just the only explanation for everything on planet Earth, and if survival of the fittest is what determines how our world works, then isn't Doeg the fittest? Didn't he just destroy weaker parts of the species? On what basis can someone who doesn't believe in God as judge, on what basis could anyone say that what Doeg did was was wrong, was evil? And yet, and we so often hear that in our culture. But logically, it doesn't follow. We also live in a world that says that we should follow our desires and don't let anyone else tell us how we should live. We should live the way that we want to live. Well, Doeg followed his desires. You see, we don't really clarify, well, which desires are are we supposed to listen to? And which desires should should we follow? 
You see, only, only an understanding with God as judge and God as creator can we understand. Yes, I listen to this desire, but I don't listen to that desire. And there's a sense of right and of wrong. You see, David is going to take great comfort, even in the midst of this tragedy, he's going to take great comfort in the fact that God is judge. You see, it's not a matter of will God deal with evil. It's not a matter of does God want to deal with evil or is God able to deal with evil? Is he strong enough? It's not a matter of will he or can he. It's a matter of when. When will he deal with evil? And that leads us to the second point. It's the punishment of the Lord. The punishment of the Lord. Verse 5, but God. Doeg is walking around doing this boasting, thinking that he's a mighty man of God. Or sorry, just a mighty man. But verse 5 then says, but God. God will break you down forever. Doeg is like a wall and God is going to smash through it and it's never getting rebuilt. Notice the eternality of the judgment. It will go on forever. He will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living Selah. Notice the close proximity of all of these aggressive verbs. Break you down, snatch you, tear you, uproot you. It may seem like God is delaying in his justice, but when it comes, it's coming quick. It's going to be over for Doeg. It's going to be over for people who commit these kinds of atrocities. God is a judge and he will not stand for it. And then there is a Selah. There's this opportunity for the, for the reader, for the listener to pause and to reflect on what it means for God to be a judge. They're going to get snatched from their tent, from the place where they feel comfortable, where they feel at home. They're going to be uprooted like a weed in a garden. They're going to be broken down forever. Then verse 6 says, The righteous see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and sought refuge in his own destruction. There's going to be a lesson. The people will see and they will fear. They will stand in awe of who God is as judge. This will all happen. It also says that they will laugh. Now this isn't talking about mocking someone and, and, and delighting in someone's destruction. Proverbs 24, 17 warns us, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So it's not that kind of laughter, but it's, a, it's just a sense of amazement and wonder at how God turned the tables in such an unexpected way. You know, the book of Esther describes this, this, this controversy between a very powerful man named Naaman and Esther's cousin Mordecai. And Naaman hates Mordecai, hates all Jewish people. And Naaman goes to great trouble to arrange this parade for himself where people will praise him and, and celebrate him. And then Naaman also goes to great trouble to build this massive gallows where Mordecai would be hung and executed. 
And as you read the story, it seems like that's the way it's going to work. Naaman, the bad guy, is going to be celebrated and honored. And Mordecai, the good guy, is going to be hung on the gallows. And then at the very last minute, Naaman ends up on the gallows. Mordecai ends up in the parade. Naaman was broken down, uprooted, torn and snatched in an instant. Everything changed. And people saw and they feared and they laughed at the goodness of God in bringing about this turn of events. You see, sometimes we get so impatient with God, we wonder, why don't you step in now? Why don't you judge that person now? But listen, sometimes God, he's got, a, he's got a, a grand plan. And notice how it says at the, at the end of verse 7, See this man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, sought refuge in his own destruction. God so often likes to have evil people build things for themselves so that it falls on them. That's what happened with Naaman. He built the gallows that he thought were for someone else. And he's the one who ended up hanging from them. So, so often God delays to allow whatever needs to be built to be built so that it could be crushed. But we also need to understand, and this is why we don't laugh, is God so often delays. Why? Because he longs for people to repent. God is not slow as others would count slowly, but desires that all people would repent. There's still hope for Doeg. There's still hope for, for people who have committed these atrocities in our world. The punishment of the Lord. But there's also a sense, notice how the righteous are mentioned in, in verse 6 and the, in verse 7. This idea of Doeg not making God his refuge. There are those who do make God his refuge. And God is, is not just intent on punishing the wicked. He is also intent on comforting the victims. Those who, who, who have been victims of these, this kind of evil. Just as David brought Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, with him and said, I'm going to look after you. I'm going to protect you now. God wraps his arms around those who have experienced such catastrophic loss. You see, God knows what it is for, for his people to go through suffering at the hands of evildoers. God knows it firsthand because he sent his son who was innocent and falsely accused and nailed to a cross. Experiencing all of that pain and that sorrow and that shame so that he could comfort those who experience those things. And when we truly have our eyes on Jesus, when we truly have our, eye, our eyes on who God is, verse 5 started with a but God. Now look at verse, nine, verse 8, there's a but I. So this is the, there's the portrait of the wicked. This is who Doag is. But then he says, but God. And then he says, because I know who God is, he says, but I. This is the difference it makes in my life. So lastly, the, the psalm talks about the permanence of the believer. The permanence of the believer. In verse 8 he says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Not exactly the metaphor I was expecting. Doeg is this evil person. He's, he's uh, 
claiming to be a mighty man, a warrior. And David says, I'm a tree. But it's important here to recognize that he's in, he calls himself a green olive tree. Perhaps when David was on the run, he, he passed an olive tree. Olive trees are among the longest living trees on planet earth. The average life of an olive tree is about 500 years. And they produce olives to the very, very end. And so David might have gone past an a olive tree as he's on the run, as he's fleeing. You know, olive trees are quite remarkable. There are some on the island of Crete. We can get a picture of, of this one. On the island of Crete, these trees are estimated to be between 2,000 and 4,000 years old. They, they are disease-proof, drought-proof, fire-resistant. That, that's a 41-foot perimeter. Or like a, the, the trunk itself, these things are massive. And, just, and they're still producing olives. You see, when David says, I am a green olive tree, he's saying, listen, I am living a life that is fruitful, that is productive, that is secure. Liz Mitchell, who's on our staff, has family in Greece. She's visited Greece a number of times. She commented on how a tree like this, you can notice, the ground around it is rock hard. This, these aren't the ideal conditions for, uh, for growing trees, and yet they thrive. And David here is setting himself in stark contrast to Doeg. Remember back in verse 5, he says, I will uproot you. Or God will uproot you like a, like a weed. So here's the contrast. Doeg is like a, tree, like a weed that just gets uprooted. But David is like a green olive tree. It's a sign of permanence. It's a sign of you can do whatever you want, Doeg. You can even, you can even try to kill. You can go ahead and kill me. But I am an olive tree in the house of the Lord. David also wrote, I, Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's amazing. Do you see how he says he's in the house of God? But David's on the run. He's far from the house of God, but he knows God's presence is with him. So how do we live lives like that? How can we be like an olive tree in the face of such evil? How can we be disease-proof and drought-proof and fire-resistant? Well, David makes three commitments at the end of verse 8, he says, I will trust. In verse 9, he says, I will thank. And also in verse 9, he says, I will wait. I will trust. I will thank. I will wait. It begins with trust. He says, I will trust in the steadfast love of God. That same steadfast love he referred to in verse 1. That endures all the day. Steadfast love, it's two words in English. It's one word in Hebrew, chesed. And the English attempt at translating has said is kind of interesting. As I mentioned, it's two words, steadfast and love. But steadfast is a compound word, so technically it's three words. Stead means place, like your homestead. Fast means stick or attach, like fasten. So steadfast, it stays in place. The steadfast love of God. God's love 
that when it attaches to a person, it doesn't go anywhere. It stays in place. That's what David is trusting in. Even though all of this evil is happening, even though Doeg is still walking free and boasting about his evil, he knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God. That's what he's trusting in. And notice his eternal perspective forever and ever. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and he's got his eyes not just on the here and now, but on eternity. Then he says in verse 9, I will thank you forever. More emphasis on eternity. But it's surprising what he says. I will thank you, future, forever, because you have done it. Past tense. David says, I thank you in the future. I will thank you. I will thank you forever because of something that's already happened. You have done it. But it hasn't happened yet. Doeg's still out on the loose. David's still on the run. But David is so confident in God's steadfast love. He's so confident that God is judge and will do what is right. That he's already thanking him in advance for what he knows God will do. What are you trusting God for right now? And you need to thank him in advance. It may not work out exactly the way that you expect it. But how can you give thanks in who God is and his love towards you and commit to thank him even when you haven't seen the finished results? He says, I will trust, I will thank, and then lastly he says, I will wait. He says, I will wait for your name. The name of God is associated with the character of God. When it's just talking about the name of God, he's not just waiting for God to speak his name. No, he's waiting for God to reveal his character. When God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, it says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is what God said. When he proclaimed his name, he described his character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is the character of God, that he's just. He's forgiving, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Doeg will be judged. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. David says, I will wait for your name, God. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you are going to reveal your character in my situation. You're going to show me your steadfast love, your grace and your mercy and your justice. He says, I will wait for your name, for it is good. When we are faced with evil, we need to remind ourselves that God is good. When we are faced with, with atrocity, when we are faced with something that seems so dark and so evil and so wicked, we need to remember that God is good. And then he ends the psalm, the last line says, in the presence of the godly. By this time, David has gathered a few people to himself and they become his mighty men. 
Abiathar, the, the, the son of Ahimelech who had, who had been executed. And other people start to gather around David. And he is now not just suffering on his own, not dealing with this, with this evil on his own. He's in the presence of the God. He's got a group of people together. And they are together declaring that God is good. They're saying, we will trust him. We will thank him and we will wait for him for he is good. David wrote this song to sing in community, to sing in the presence of the godly. And I want to invite you to stand up right now and we're going to stand like a grove of olive trees together knowing the permanence that God has promised to us. And Jameson's going to lead us in a song that he wrote for our church that we could sing and declare and know God's goodness. And so let's sing this out. Let's believe this. Let's trust him. Let's thank him. Let's, let's wait for him.